the following message entitled, Jesus, a Priest Like No Other, part of the series, Hold Fast, was given by Joe Ryer on the 15th of May, 2011, at Sovereign Grace Church of Indiana, Pennsylvania. To learn more about our church, please visit www.sgcindianapa.org. Well, if you have a Bible, open up to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to read it in a moment. Well, Mark and Stephen, the two other pastors who are on staff here, are away at a wedding today. So I am going solo. So if ever there was a time to heckle, today is, is the day. Hebrews chapter 7. Before we read the passage, I just want to ask you a simple question that I think most of you should be able to answer yes to. I hope, but we'll see. So the simple question is, raise your hand if you know what a Model T is. Good. You're a good American. Model T, you got it. Well, let me just read a little bit about the Model T to you. The Ford Model T is a car, which you knew, that was produced by Henry Ford, Ford Motor Company, from 1908 to 1927. Now, the Model T set in 1908 as a historic year that the automobile became popular. So it's generally regarded as the first affordable automobile, the car that opened travel to the common middle-class American. So, and you know that Henry Ford invented the assembly line, and that made the Model T very cheap. Well, raise your hand if you own a Model T now and you drive one. Okay, I thought you would say no to that question as well. Well, here's, here's the point. The Model T was a great car for its time. And it made transportation much quicker and much more affordable. So you didn't have to ride a horse, you didn't have to walk, you got to drive a car. But over the decades, the Model T has been replaced by cars that are much more efficient, much more superior. And so, it would be odd, unless you were a collector, for us to reject a modern car so that we could just drive a Model T around. So we'd be run late to everything. We would, we would have these expensive repairs. It wouldn't make any sense because a new car is so far superior to a Model T. Well, this morning in the book of Hebrews, we're going to look at something that is superior to something old, something that is far superior to what was common for a long period of time. And obviously, as we look in the book of Hebrews, we're not going to be reading about cars or transportation, but we're going to be looking at something that might not be real familiar to us. We're going to be looking at priesthoods and sacrificial systems and some specific things about the Old Testament law. But what what it has in common with the Model T is something far superior has replaced the priesthood. Something far superior has replaced the sacrificial system. Something far superior has replaced the Old Testament law. And so this morning, we're going to learn and see what this far superior thing is that's replaced the Old Testament law. Look in your Bibles. I said Hebrews 7, but we're going to actually start Hebrews 6, verse 19. We're going to read through to verse 10. And then eventually, Lord willing, by the end of this morning, We'll get through to the end of chapter 7. 
So look at verse 19 of chapter 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. His, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also the king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having no neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham. Abraham's paying this man money. And blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. Now, if you have no idea what this passage is talking about at this point, you're in very good company. But by the grace of God, with God's help, we're going to make it through this passage. And this is a morning that it would be very good if you're a coffee drinker, if you drank extra coffee this morning. Because we're going to need some brain power firing on this passage. But if you hang in there, by the end, we're going to see we have a great hope in Jesus Christ. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, oh, we need your help. And you love to speak to your people. So, Lord, would you do that this morning through this extremely important chapter of the Bible? Lord, may our eyes of faith be opened wide. And may we do the hard work of, of trying to make sense of all these details so that we enjoy you more and we have more confidence in approaching you because you have made a way for sinners like us to come boldly to you through Jesus Christ. So Lord, would you please help me this morning? Lord, we just ask this in your name. Amen. Well, one of the things that makes this passage, this chapter in the Bible, um, difficult is because we're not Jewish. So if we were Jewish, what I just read would make a ton of sense to all of us. But I'm going to guess, not knowing all of you, but knowing many of you, that in the last week you have not been in conversations such as this, debates such as this. Debates like, well, you know, which is greater, the Melchizedekian priesthood or the Levitical priesthood? Which is better? Was 
Melchizedek better or was Levi better? Which line is really the best line to follow? High school students, I imagine this week in school you weren't having those conversations. So you weren't locked in to debate. You weren't locked into debate of, well, King Melchizedek, was he an angel or was he a man? We, we don't think about these things because we're not Jewish. But God put this chapter in the Bible because he has something extremely important to teach us. And we're going to see from this king, this obscure king, we're going to learn a lot about Jesus. And if we didn't have this king recorded in the Bible, we wouldn't know as much about Jesus as we do. And so it's really important for us as Christians to figure out who is this king, Melchizedek, and why, why is he important? What, why, why spend a morning going through this chapter trying to, to figure out what is going on? Well, the reason is, is because as we, we go through this, as we mine this passage, what we're going to see is that Jesus is this promised priest from the order of Melchizedek that this plan that God planned Starting in the book of Genesis, we see this glimpse of a plan that God made a way to save sinners like us, who were not Jewish, who, without this plan, we would have no hope in approaching God this morning. Now, the book that we're looking at is called the Hebrews, because it was written to Jewish Christians. That's why it's called the Hebrews. We don't know who the author is, but we do know who the recipients were, They were Jewish Christians, and they experienced a temptation and pressure that we can't relate to. So they experienced a strong pressure to go back to the Old Testament law, to go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. So replay your last week. I'm sure we all have had temptations and sins that have occurred. I bet none of us had this temptation. I bet none of you were were, were wrestling laying in your bed at night wondering, should I find a Levitical priest somewhere in the world or should I trust in Jesus? We're not doing that. At least I'm not doing that. If you're doing that, um, we might need to talk after church. But we're not, we're not doing that because we're not Jewish. But the original recipients, this was a major deal. And the content of this chapter was massive because what is going to occur in this chapter is a major shift in what Jewish people would have believed and known for centuries. And that's why the author spends so much time explaining who this king Melchizedek is and why he's so important. So let's look at the first point. King Melchizedek, his priesthood prepares the way for Jesus. This king, this obscure king, prepares the way for Jesus. Now, with the exception of a few of us in this room, probably most of us don't know a lot about um, this man, other than he has an unusually long name. Uh, you've, you've come across him occasionally in the Bible. But the author of Hebrews wants us to learn some more about him. So look at verse 1, chapter 7. And keep in mind, this will help you, that, that King Melchizedek, he was a real man, but he was a real man who's aim was really pointing at Jesus, and that's what we're going to see. So, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, made Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. 
And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he's also king of Salem, which means king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. Well, what the author is saying here is this king, this is a man who lived in the, the days of Abraham. So in Genesis chapter 14, we learn about him. He lived in the days of Abraham. And when we think of kings in the Old Testament, I think we can often think of like the royal wedding and this great grand thing. But a king in the Old Testament at times was more like a mayor of 5,000 people, 10,000 people. So a king didn't necessarily mean a large kingdom with hundreds of thousands of people under his rule. But this man was a king. And this man, the author of Hebrews is saying, is he, his priesthood, his life pointed to Jesus. Because we're going to see that later on, Jesus is referred to as a priest from the order of Melchizedek. Well, King Melchizedek, some really interesting things are happening here. One, his name means king of righteousness. And he was the king of Salem, which means peace. So even in his name, it was to be a signpost pointing to a greater king who would be the ultimate king of righteousness and a greater king who would be the ultimate king of peace. And something really interesting is happening here too. He was both a king and a priest. Well, after the Old Testament law was written and Moses came, which would have been hundreds of years after this king lived, a priest could not be a king and a king could not be a priest. So Melchizedek was unique in that, that he was both king and priest. And he was actually an early type pointing towards Jesus who would come thousands and thousands of years later. He was to resemble Jesus. Well, a lot of really smart guys over the centuries have said things like, well, maybe he was Jesus before Jesus was born. Or maybe um, he was just a glimpse of Jesus. Maybe he was an angel. But And the reason they say that is because of verse 3. It says, this king had no father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning or end of days. Well, I think the plain meaning here is not that he was Jesus or that he was an angel, but, but just that there was no genealogy recorded about him in the Bible. There's no part in Genesis that says Melchizedek was born on this year and he died on this year. And there's nothing in the Bible that says Melchizedek was son of this man, who 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 was son of this man. If you're familiar with the Old Testament and even the New Testament, genealogies are a big deal. So the fact that there's no genealogy is a big deal. The fact that it's silent is a big deal. because Not because he was an angel or because he was Jesus, but God purposely didn't record the details because he knew one day Melchizedek's name, beginning in Psalm 110, would be used to point forward to Jesus to come. So in this way, he resembles Jesus. Because Jesus had no earthly, biological father. And Jesus, who is God from the beginning and rose from the dead and lives forever, will have no end. And so, Melchizedek was a faint picture 
of a great king and priest who was going to come to rescue us thousands of years later. And for us, because we're not Jewish, we're not quite as shocked. But for a good Jew who understands the Old Testament law, this this would have been so important for them to see that, yeah, this was actually talked about, this Jesus was talked about in the book of Genesis. There was signs pointing his way. So, King Melchizedek, he's, he was preparing the way for King Jesus. He was preparing the way for the ultimate man who was both king and priest. Look at verse 4. Because we're going to learn some things about King Melchizedek that are huge, important truths in the Bible. We're going to learn that, that this king actually was greater than Abraham himself, than the Levites, and then the entire Old Testament law. So this man who we know nothing about, doesn't have a birthday, don't know when he died, he's actually a very big deal. Bigger than Abraham, bigger than Moses, bigger than the law, bigger than all the priests. Look at verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. All he's saying there, he's saying this guy was a big deal because rather than him giving money, ties to Abraham, Abraham stopped after he went to war some other kings. Abraham won. He had a lot of loot from the battle. He comes back and he gives that to Melchizedek. This is Abraham. Abraham is the patriarch of our faith. He's the man who God said, through this man, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So when Abraham comes across Melchizedek's path, the role should be reversed. Melchizedek should be like emptying his pockets. What else can I give this man? This is Abraham. This is God's chosen man through who all the blessings of all the people in the world who come to know Jesus will come through. And it's reversed. And the argument in verses 5, 6, and 7 is, is not only is he greater than Abraham, but look at verse 6 and 7. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. The promises are the promises from the living God. They're a very big deal. Verse 7 says, it's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So Melchizedek, the greater, blesses Abraham, the lesser. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was in the loins of his ancestors, one Melchizedek met him. Pull you back in. Here's what's happening. The, for a Jewish person, the tribe you were from meant everything. And so, so the fact that Abraham is giving money to this king that's obscure is a big deal. But the author's making a bigger deal. He's saying, well, Abraham, who was the, you know, the great, 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 great grandpa of Moses, 
So Moses is now under Abraham, and then through Moses came the law, came the, the, the priests from the line of Levi. All those people that came after Abraham, actually all those people are inferior to this great king as well. And he's building a case, and he's going to show us that, that this king and his line of priesthood, which is a different line than it's written in the Old Testament, that's written in the book of Leviticus, that's written in the first five books of the Bible, this law is actually, there's something greater than the Old Testament law. Now for us, that, that, we can make that connection maybe, but for a Jew, this means all that they learn from their littlest years as they're, they're going and they're being good Jews and they're, they're studying the Old Testament, the author's saying it's, it's all going to be wiped away. It's all going to become obsolete. The Old Testament law, the sacrificial priest system, it's all going to be wiped out. Not because it was bad. It was good. It served a purpose for a time. But one far, far, far greater is coming. One who has a far greater hope is coming. And Melchizedek was pointing forward to that great hope. And so it's a radical statement that the author is making. This is why people got killed for being Christians who were Jewish, because it was, it was an offense. It was shocking that they're saying the Old Testament law, something greater than the Old Testament law is here. We don't need to go through priests anymore. We can go to God right through Jesus. So in the book of Genesis, Melchizedek is pointing centuries forward to one who would come to save us. Now, to pull some of us in, an illustration from Star Wars. So you're like, yeah, we know Star Wars. Um, So you remember, there was a prophecy in Star Wars, okay? And the prophecy is that one would come. And, and... The the Jedi Council actually thought that meant that it was Anakin Skywalker who was the one talked about. And Anakin Skywalker turns out to be Darth Vader later on. So he started well, did some good things, but then turned bad. But the prophecy actually was about who? Luke Skywalker. That's right. So he came in and he fulfilled. So one, one came that looked like the one, but he wasn't the one. He was pointing forward to to the great one. Well, that's what's happening here. One came who was unique. He was a king and he was a priest. But he wasn't the one. And the one was yet to come. And we know who the one is. The one to come is Jesus. And in the rest of this chapter, which is actually much easier to understand, um, we're going to see that Jesus is just so far greater than any priest that ever lived. He's so far greater than the Old Testament law. He's so far greater than any system set up to approach God. So look at verse 11 through 17, because we're going to see in point two that Jesus' priesthood changes everything. The fact that Jesus is a priest from this king, Melchizedek, it changes everything. It has actually changed everything in your life. And you, you probably haven't even made the connection that it had anything to do with Melchizedek. But it changes everything. 
One last technical section, and then we'll get to stuff that's probably clicking a little more clearly. Look at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Verse 11, now if perfection had been attainable, if it was possible to be right with God perfectly through the Old Testament law, through the Old Testament priests, then we wouldn't need anything else. If it was possible for sinners like you and I to approach God through the law, then then we don't need Jesus. We don't need a Savior. We don't need a mediator. We don't need a high priest who's perfect. But the author is saying, it's not possible. It is not possible to attain perfection through the law. It's not possible to attain perfection through the priest, even the high priest who's sacrificing animals on our behalf if we were Jewish. It's not possible. So what he's saying in verse 12 is, for for when there is a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. There's a change in the priesthood. All the Jewish priests came through the line of Levi. But now Jesus is not coming through the line of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah. He's coming from a different line, not a priestly line. And the author's saying, well, if this is true, it's going to change everything. It's going to change the entire law. Because according to the Bible and for a Jew, the sacrificial system and the Old Testament law, they were tight. They were tied together. You couldn't pull them apart. You couldn't separate them. So if one is being replaced, they're both being replaced. Look at verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. No one from Judah has ever been a priest. Verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with the tribe of Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What he's saying here is there was another priest coming from the line of Melchizedek. But this one wasn't coming because of his genealogy. He wasn't coming because of his ancestors. He wasn't coming because of who he was related to. He was becoming, he was coming as the king and priest because of his substance, of who he was. He was God in flesh. He was the indestructible life. This one was unique. And what qualified him was who he was, not who he was related to. And that's, What's building here. And then the author of Hebrews cites Psalm 110, which is a reference to Jesus. It says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You are a priest forever. Well, if you would have read that as a Jewish person, you would have thought every priest I've ever known, if we were old, they've all died. And they could only serve from the age of 25 to the age of 50. So there's no such thing in the Bible as a priest who lives forever. Because they all die, and if they hit the age of 50, they have to retire. 
Well, this is pointing to one that's unique, that's going to be a savior. So look at verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. So on the one hand, something radical in history is happening here. The law, the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, they're, they're being set aside. And he's even so bold to say they're being set aside and he's referring to them as useless. They're useless, he says. So that's what's happening on the one side. For the law made nothing perfect. Now, if you're a guest, we, we believe in the Bible. We believe in the Old Testament. We're not, we're not not believing in the Bible. All All pages of the Bible. But the point is, the law served a purpose. The sacrificial served a purpose. But the purpose wasn't a way for us to attain perfection. The purpose was it was always pointing to Jesus and our need for Jesus and the fact that Jesus was going to come one day and serve us. And then it all hinges, hinges on the second part of verse 19. A better hope is introduced. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. There's a better hope through which sinners like you and I can draw near to God. There's a better hope than waiting for a priest to sacrifice an animal on our behalf. There is a far better hope. And Jesus is this far better hope. So, as non-Jews this morning, we have a far, far, far better hope than any person from the line of Levi, any Jew who was going to the priest regularly, any Jew who had memorized large portions of the Old Testament law. Now we have a far better hope because Jesus is our far better hope. And he's the one who makes a way by which we can draw near to God. Without Jesus, you and I, we, we could not draw near to God. God is holy. God is awesome. God is amazing. God is perfect. In contrast, the Bible says, we're sinful. We're rebels. We're spiritually dead. We're spiritually blind. So if we don't have a better hope, we have worlds of problems. We have an eternity of hell awaiting us if this verse is not true. We have no better hope. John MacArthur says this about Jesus being a better hope. He says the priestly sacrifice, the priestly sacrifices included the one, including the one by the high priest on the day of atonement, were not permanent. They had to be repeated and repeated and repeated continually. They had no permanence. They provided no permanent forgiveness, no permanent righteousness, no permanent peace. So if we were a Jew, and a good Jew, a practicing Jew, we still would have to go regularly, repeatedly, time after time. There was no permanence. And this is hugely significant. No permanent forgiveness. No permanent righteousness. No permanent peace. In contrast, our better hope, Jesus He provides permanent forgiveness. 
If you've turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, permanent forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins once for all. Permanent righteousness. Because he's the king of righteousness. And when we trust in Jesus, his righteousness is our righteousness. When God the Father looks at us, he sees Jesus' righteousness covering us. It's permanent. It's not going anywhere. You can't wipe it away. You can't wash it away. It's absolutely permanent. Permanent peace. If you've turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, there's no eternal condemnation that will ever await you. You have permanent peace because we have a better hope in Jesus Christ. And we can draw near to God always because of Jesus. We can come boldly because of Jesus. And here's the thing that that makes Jesus so different than any priest or high priest recorded of in the Old Testament. He didn't bring something else to sacrifice. So when he was coming to sacrifice for our sins, which he did do, he didn't have anything with him. He was the sacrifice. He didn't bring any animals because he knew animals wouldn't solve the problem permanently. It wouldn't close the gap permanently of the separation between sinners and a holy God. No, he was the priest, he was the king, and he was the sacrifice. Look at, or just listen to 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What a priest. He was sinless, so he, he could be the sacrifice. He was fully God, so he could take the eternal wrath of God upon himself and he could absorb the punishment for us. He could do that all for us. He was the only one who could do that. There was no other person who could do that. Even King Melchizedek, no matter how great, he couldn't do it. Jesus did it for us. And that's why, as Christians, we can come boldly to God at all times. We have free access to God because Jesus became our sacrifice. He died for our sins. That's good news. That's incredible news. And because of that, we have total access to God today. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says, For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. We need a priest who's perfect, who's sinless, who never sinned. And that was Jesus. He's a better hope. If you're not a Christian, the way to God is not changing yourself. It's not cleaning yourself up. It's not reading books to help you. I remember before I became a Christian, I thought, if I want to be right with God, i got to change. So I bought like weird-looking shoes that were dressy. I, I would buy marijuana and I'd throw it away because I think, well, I shouldn't, shouldn't do that. I would... I would change the way I looked. I would change the way I dressed because I was trying to clean up the outside. It's an impossible task. God is holy. We are sinful. The only thing that will clean us permanently is the blood of Jesus. And so if if you're wondering, how do I get right with God? You get right with God by trusting in Jesus, coming to Jesus, saying, Jesus, I believe you died 
for me. Because Jesus is a better hope. And for us who are Christians, we have this great hope. We can approach him boldly this morning, which brings us to the next point. Jesus' priesthood secures a better hope. It locks in a better hope. Look at verse 20. And it was not without oath, without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath. By the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. He's saying this better hope, this Jesus, he came with an oath. He came with a promise. And do you know who the one who gave the promise was? It was God. The creator of the world, the father of Jesus, says, the Lord is sworn. He will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. Stamp of approval. God himself. You can't argue with that. The one who speaks worlds into existence gives the stamp of approval. Jesus is the better hope. And Jesus' priesthood secures a better hope because he's the guarantee of this better hope. Look at verse 22. It just says, This makes Jesus the guarantee of a better covenant, of a better way to relate to God. The Model T was useful for a time to get from point A to point B. But there are better cars to get from point A to point B now. Same way with the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law, sacrificial system, it was useful for a time. But there's a far, far, far better way to approach God. And Jesus is the guarantee. You don't have to doubt if you're a Christian, if you're going to go to heaven. If you've turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, you're going to go to heaven. You're going to make it. You're going to be with God forever, enjoying Him. Not because of your ability to keep a set of rules. Not because of how faithful you are at reading the Bible. But because of Jesus. He's the guarantee. He's the one who did it all for us. We just have to rest in Him. And trust in Him. Because He guaranteed it for us. Well, there's, there's good there's more good news. The reason we can be so confident is because Jesus is alive now. He died and now he's alive. Look at verse 23 and 24. The former priests were many in number, but a whole pile of them. Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, so there had to be a lot of them because they kept dying. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus conquered death. He lives forever. He's the superior priest because death could not stop him. Sin could not keep him. He's alive and well, and he's our hope. Not only that, his superior priesthood, it secures a better hope because he's able to save to the uttermost. He can save any sinner and every sinner who trusts in him. Look at verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. This should fill us with faith. If you're not a Christian, this should fill you with faith that no matter what you've done, no matter how bad or wicked 
or vile it's been, Jesus can save you. He can rescue you. Your sins have not disqualified you from being saved. And for those of us who have good friends and family members and neighbors who, who don't know Jesus, and when you try to talk to them, they, they, it's just like hitting a wall. Makes no sense. Well, he's able to save them. He's able to save to the uttermost. He can save anyone and everyone who comes to him. And then they can draw near to God. Think of your own story. You were once dead and now are alive. Well, how'd that happen? That happened because of this better hope. Because Jesus can save to the uttermost. I've been a Christian about 15 years or so. And one of the things that is cool is I love being in Pennsylvania where the seasons change. Because as the seasons change, I just, it just triggers memories in my mind. And, and I was a non-Christian IUP student. And I can remember the spring after my first year of college. I, I was dead in my sins. I sinned a ton. I, I was starting to experience the misery of sin, the consequences of sin. I had absolutely no hope. I went home for the summer, hated my life, couldn't change myself, had no idea about the Bible, picked up a Bible, started reading, didn't make any sense. But I, I was God's enemy. And, and I was deserving of hell. I did nothing to change my life. I did nothing to save myself. It's Jesus who saved me. It's Jesus who saved you. He's the one who saves to the uttermost. He came in and grabbed a hold of me. He came in and forgave me of my sins. And so it's the same for us who have friends and loved ones and neighbors. And Lord willing, new people will be coming to our church. Our confidence isn't in programs and systems. It's in Jesus. He's the one who saves to the uttermost. And then lastly, Jesus' priesthood secures a better hope because he's absolutely spotless. There is not a sin that can be accused to Jesus. He's spotless. He's perfect. Those of us who have toddlers, we don't have a spotless one in the bunch. We have a lot of little kids in the church. There's not a spotless one in the bunch. And there are only three or four. They haven't even made it um, into adolescence yet. They're not spotless. They're just like their moms and dads. We were not spotless. Jesus is spotless. Look at verse 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins, first for his own sins and, and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of oath, the promise from God, which came later, then the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So this morning... We have a great hope. We have a hope in Jesus who was perfect. He was sinless. He he never did anything wrong so that he could die for our many sins. So what that means is we can run to God this morning. We have access to God. We're going to be with God forever 
Because Jesus is the priest forever. Out of this order of Melchizedek. So as we pray this morning, and as we we turn to sing the last song, I pray that you're filled with joy and faith. There's nothing separating you between yourself and God if you are a Christian. Jesus opened the gates wide for you. Let's pray. And if I could have the worship team come on up. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you that you, Jesus, are such a savior for sinners like us. And Lord, I thank you for this church. I pray for every one of us who knows you that there would be just immediate joy and boldness in approaching you and asking you things and praying for loved ones. Lord, fill us with faith and confidence this morning that we have you as our Father. And Lord, for those who don't yet know you, Lord, even as we sing this last song, I pray their eyes would be open to see you as amazing and beautiful and as their hope and as their Savior. And Lord, we just ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.